Second uh, Samuel chapter number five. The title of the message is Kingdom Collage. Second Samuel five. That's exactly what it is. It's it's a collage. It's not a single flowing narrative. So so we get like First Samuel seventeen, the famous story narrative of of David and Goliath, right? That's a single flowing narrative. And we get stories all through the life of David, these exciting uh, narratives and stories. Well, this chapter isn't like that. The narrator uh, puts together a collection of episodes or, or pieces of information. He places them all side by side and they all relate to the establishing of David's kingdom. In chapter five, right here, we finally start a new chapter in David's life. He's now going to be officially the king of all of Israel. It's going to be his kingdom. Of course, it's God's kingdom, but he's going to be God's king. This collection of events in chapter 5, they're not sequential. They're going to almost feel like they're sequential, but they're not. They're not chronological. So it seems to me that the narrator had in mind to, to give us this proper view of the kingdom under David right at the start. Now, honestly, when I went into the study, I was a bit perplexed in how to preach this chapter. I said in my pastor's preview that I put on Facebook, if I wasn't preaching sequentially and expositionally through a book of the Bible, I wouldn't pick this chapter to preach. It's tough to figure out how am I going to apply this to God's people, but with the help of an author named Del Ralph Davis, who I've benefited from in the study of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, I think I've come to understand it a little bit better. Davis separates this chapter into four major headings that that really help us. The four headings are these. Number one, the promises that secure the kingdom. Number two, the vision that prospers the kingdom. Number three, the the compromise that mars the kingdom. And number four, the defender who protects the kingdom. I'm going to walk through his four headings and see what application we can extract for our own lives tonight. Let's jump right in. Heading number one, the promises that secure the kingdom. Verses one and two. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. The promises that secure the kingdom. These elders of the tribes of Israel approach David and they express their desire to anoint him king. In that expression we read, they claimed three things. Number one, they said, we have a relationship with you. You're, you're one of us. We want you to lead us. Number two, we acknowledge your leadership. It's exceptional. It far exceeds Saul's. We want you to be our leader. But most importantly, number three, the Lord has said that you're going to be our king. He's promised that you would be our king. Now, if you remember, the Lord's promise of the kingdom to David first came in view back in 1 Samuel 13 years ago in David's life. In verse 14, after Saul disqualified himself. Here's that promise. But now thy kingdom, he's talking to Saul, shall not continue because the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. That's David. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Now think about all the things that happened in David's life between 1 Samuel 13 when that promise was announced and 2 Samuel chapter 5 when it was fulfilled. We're talking years of opposition. 
The attacks from King Saul, the, the dark and lonely nights in a cave while he was on his run, his own people turning his back on him, 1 Samuel chapter 25, the, the northern tribe of Israel rebelling against him. Years of opposition between the announcement of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. But it's as though the narrator includes this detail about Yahweh's promise being fulfilled. So as to say, see there, see how the Lord's promise to David came to pass. See how God's promise weathered the severe opposition at every turn. Here's the point. God's promises are certain no matter the resistance they may meet. But the narrator doesn't just highlight how God fulfilled his promise to David. He also highlighted in the next few verses how God through David fulfilled the promise he had made hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, look at these verses. Study with me. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the, the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the, what's the next word? Jebusites. God promised Abraham that he would have all this land if Abraham would follow him by faith and go get it. However, the Israelites up to this point right here in 2 Samuel 5 had not been able to drive the Jebusites out of their land. Joshua 15, verse 63, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Fast forward, Judges 121, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. Yet, Yet here in 2 Samuel 5, several hundred years later, David is going to overrun the Jebusite Jebusite stronghold and he's going to make it his city. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, they're mocking David, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David uh, went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Hundreds of years, watch this, hundreds of years after the promise was originally given to Abraham, God's people were finally able through David to drive the Jebusites out of the land. That's a big deal. I said, that's a big deal. If verses one through five teach us that God's promises are certain in spite of opposition, even though Saul tried to fight David becoming king. Then verses 6 through 10 teach us that God's promises are certain in spite of their age. This promise was 100 years old before it was fulfilled. Watch here. God's promises to us, they may be opposed or they may be old, but they're never false. 
Enemies cannot dissolve the promises of God, as was the case with Saul opposing David's kingship all those years, nor can time dissolve the promises of God, as was the case here with Abraham. This should encourage us with the promises that God has given to us in his word. God has promised to give us wisdom when we ask him for it by faith, James 1. God has promised to supply our need according to the rich of his son in glory, Philippians 4. God has promised to finish in us what he has started, Philippians 1. God has promised that our salvation is secure until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1. God has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13. God has promised to always provide a way of escape from temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. God has promised that he will come back to get us, John 14. God has promised us eternal life in the new heaven and new earth if we're saved. Revelation 21. There may be times when our enemy opposes these promises. There there may be times when we go days or, or months or even years without seeing the fruit of these promises in our life. But remember from this example that time cannot dissolve God's promises and no enemy can destroy them either. They may be opposed and they may be old, but God's promises are never false. I love it. I love it. It's a great first lesson we can glean from the kingdom collage. Let's move on to the second heading. The vision that prospers the kingdom. Verse 11 and 12. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. The narrator shows us the generosity of King Hiram and and the people of Tyre in building David a house or a palace of sorts. But the real point is in David's response to the house being built. David perceived this house as a sign of how Yahweh had confirmed and established his kingdom in Israel. He said, God did this. God was making his king and his kingdom Permanent in the eyes of his people. But even more significant, watch here, is what David said at the end of verse 12. David realized that God had had established his kingship. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. This is how David viewed his kingship. Get this, God did not give David a throne and a palace so he could act like a king but so that he could function as a servant to God's people. Kingship in God's eyes, kingship in David's eyes was not an end in itself, but a means to an end. David was placed over Israel for Israel. David hadn't been made king for David's sake. David was made king for God's people's sake. David had this vision of himself as a servant king, and it would be the key to his prosperity and his leadership success. It's the same for us. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in regard to who is the greatest in his kingdom? It's not those who sit in high places. It's not those who hold the most power and influence. It's not those that inherit the most wealth. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those who serve others. It's a lesson we glean from David's vision of himself as as, as a leader, as God's king, servant leadership. Listen, it's the path to prosperity and greatness. Someone in here tonight 
I'm sure has leadership responsibilities. In the home, husbands who lead their wives are husbands who should lead their wives. Parents who lead their children or parents who should lead their children. In the church, pastoral leadership. Deacons and their wives who help pray and care for people. Trustees who have financial leadership. Sunday school teachers and connection group leaders who lead with the word. Christian school teachers who lead students. At work, there are supervisors in here. There are managers in here. There are business owners in our congregation. No matter where you lead, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to be effective, you need to follow David's pattern of leadership. You need to follow Jesus' pattern of leadership. You need to serve others, not seek to be served by others. Husbands, serve your wives by loving them and sacrificing for them and dwelling with them according to knowledge and listening to them like Jesus did for the church. Moms and dads, serve your children by being patient with them, by training them, by praying with them, by disciplining them with consistency and love, not anger. Teenagers, serve your parents. Don't be entitled. Don't expect them to serve you all the time. You serve them. Pastors, deacons, deacons wise, trustees, Sunday school teachers, hear me. Serve the people of Fellowship Baptist Church. Use your leadership position, not for the sake of of getting glory to yourself, but for the sake of helping the people of God. Church members, serve each other. Pray for each other. Give to each other. Forgive each other. Rejoice with each other. Bear each other's burdens. Employers in here, don't use your employees as though they're your servants. Find ways to serve them. Find ways to bless them. Find ways to empower them. This isn't just the David way of leading. This is the Jesus way of leading. David said, I perceive that this permanent residence is not so that I can prop myself up like a king leader. But so that I could serve God's people. We've seen the promises that secure the kingdom, the vision that prospers the kingdom. Notice heading number three, the compromise that mars the kingdom. Verse 13. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. Verse 14 and 16 gives us a list of those children. Watch here. On one hand, we have David's strength. Okay, the more sons you had, the stronger your house would become. But on the other hand, we have David's stupidity. His sin. Having more than one wife was in direct violation of God's law for the covenant king, according to Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. Let me say this before I go on. This is not the main point, but let me say this. All of us make mistakes. Hear me. But we better be extra careful in our relationships. If there's a decision in our life that has the most potential to affect us and those we love for the rest of our life, you know what decision that is? It's the decision of who we marry. I've heard some people say that there would be less divorce if people would just work on their marriages. And I agree with that. But I think there's a greater point. There would be less divorce if people were more careful about who they married in the first place. Be careful. Be wise. Be pure. Be patient. 
But I think there's an even greater point of application than just who we marry. This entire chapter, if you haven't noticed, is positive about David outside of this one detail. Which teaches us, watch, that the greatest of God's kings was still a sinner at best. Del Ralph Davis, I I just got to read what he said. It's amazing. David's kingship was admirable and his fidelity to Yahweh consistent. Yet we must not doctor the data. We must not sweep away evidence that shows his faithfulness less than complete or his practices controlled by human culture rather than by God's law. Such observations should be deeply instructive. They should check our tendency to Christian hero worship. Our passion for becoming so enamored with certain kingdom servants that we fail to remember that they too are sinful people who will inevitably disappoint in some way or another. Even David compromises and mars the kingdom over which he rules. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hand of David's descendant who always does what pleases the father. Somebody say amen. Amen. See, if we're not careful... We'll make heroes out of men that will eventually disappoint us. I believe we should give honor to whom honor is due. I believe we should follow godly individuals as they follow Christ. But at the end of the day, hear me, the only one who should get your worship is the one who is incapable of letting you down. Every earthly king will fail. Every president will fail. Every pastor will fail. Every parent will fail. Every grandparent will fail. But King Jesus never fails. King Jesus has never and will never mar his kingdom with sinful compromise. So worship him and him alone. We've seen the promise that secures the kingdom, the vision that prospers the kingdom, the compromise that mars the kingdom. Look, lastly, the defender who protects his kingdom. How many know who the perpetual enemy of the Israelites were? Say it out loud. The Philistines. When they heard David became king, they weren't going to have none of it. And so they go and they pick on David again. And this last section of the text, watch here, church. It shows us that God protected the kingdom from the Philistines. But more specifically, you know what it shows us? how God protected his kingdom. And it gives us a preview to how God is going to protect David and his men over and over and over. First, he protected them by his guidance. Look at verse 17 through 19. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David and David heard of it and went down to the hold. The Philistines also came up and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. I love that. Saying, shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. Now, verse 20 and 21 talk about how God did that. But drop down to verse 22 now. The Philistines come around again. God's already beat them up once. Here's the second time. Verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, watch the Lord told him this time, thou shalt not go up. But fetch a compass behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. Verse 24, and let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. This is so interesting. God's guidance. This is the way he protects him through his, his clear guidance to David. It came to David two different ways. 
In the first skirmish against the Philistines, God told David to go straight after them. He said, I got you, David. You go get them. So he did. Well, the Philistines regroup and they come back. And in the second skirmish, God told David to go behind them and wait until you hear them walking through the mulberry trees, then attack. Now, why didn't God just tell David to go straight to them the second time like he did the first time? I mean, isn't God capable of just wiping out the Philistines the second time exactly like he did the first time? Why get creative? Why get unpredictable? Why get unorthodox? I'm not sure. Why did God have Joshua walk around the walls of Jericho for seven days? All I know is that God's guidance doesn't always make sense. God's guidance isn't always conventional. It's sometimes unorthodox. Our job as followers of Christ is not to overanalyze God's guidance, but to follow it and obey it and seek it. No matter how unorthodox his way may be at times, we are most safe underneath his guidance. Let me ask you tonight, is God guiding you right now in a way that seems unordinary? In a way that that seems like the long route, in the way that seems unnecessary, let me encourage you to, to just stay straight in the way. Whether God is guiding you on the straight route that makes sense to you right now, or whether he's guiding you on a route by way of the mulberry trees that seems a little bit out of the way, hey, stay patient, stay faithful, stay on course, because God's guidance, as unorthodox as it may seem at times, is his way of keeping you safe. And I want to give you a practical observation here real quick about seeking God's guidance. We talked a little bit about it this morning. After David sought God for the first skirmish with the Philistines and then whooped them, it says that the Philistines regrouped, came back. And what did David do for the second time? He inquired of God the second time. Now you would think that David would have been okay with this God's guidance the first time, right? Why go and seek God for the same thing a second time? Get this, here's why. Because we can't assume past experience informs future plans. Just because God directed in one way in the past doesn't mean he won't direct a different way in the future. So for every decision, for every plan, for every turn, every day, we should seek God afresh and anew. So what we see is that God protected his kingdom by his guidance, but we also see that he protected him by his power. At the first battle of the Philistines, David named the battlefield Baal Perazim. That, that could be how you pronounce it. Look at verse 20. And David came to Baal Perazim and David smote them there and said, the Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore, he called the name of that place Bel Perizim. You know what that Bel Perizim means? It means this, the God of burstings out. That's what it means. David likened God's power to this way of a, of a massive torrent of water that breaks down everything in its path. Then look down at verse 24, the very last part. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite, to smite the host of the Philistines. Did you get that? He's going to go out and smite them. That word means to strike down. It has the idea of leveling something. So so first the narrator is depicting God like a current of water, breaking down the Philistines. And second, he depicts God like a warrior who's striking down the enemy. This reminds me of a psalm I memorized in speech class in high school. And every other Christian school student in the midst. 
Psalm 24, lift up your head, oh you gay. Lift up your head, oh you gay. You know, remember the gestures we all use? Lift, inside joke, I shouldn't do that from the pulpit. Lift up your heads, oh you gates. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come. And I love this. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Come on, y'all, pay attention to the word. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Agree with that out loud. The Lord mighty in battle. The narrator wanted all the future generations of Israel to know that the God they served was not a weak God. He wasn't a a passive God. He was a mighty God. He was a powerful God that could break down and strike down and level out any enemy that was in their way. As we, we need to know the same thing in the midst of our battles. If God will use his power like that to protect his kingdom for David, then God will certainly use his power to lead us in triumph today. You know where my mind goes? It goes to eschatology, to the last days. When God in all his power will judge Satan, cast him into the lake of fire, defeat all evil and sin for good, rain fire upon the earth and establish his kingdom for all eternity. We may at times feel like we're the ones losing, but there is coming a day when every wrong will be made right. There's coming a day when King Jesus will come in all his power and in all his glory and in all his might. And I am for one glad that I will be on the winning side. Can you just see it in your mind? The power of Jesus, the warrior When he comes again, he's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a difference, isn't there, in that imagery? A meek little lamb and a powerful lion. We may feel like the scoreboard shows that we're behind right now. But when the lion of the tribe of Judah comes back and you're on his team... And I'm not trying to just get amens. I'm just rejoicing in the fact that if God was powerful in this kingdom, he'll be powerful in the future kingdom. And we can hope for that. Kind of an expectation of that. But listen, God's power will fight for you right now. Romans 8, through the blood of Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. If God be for you, who can be against you? You don't have to live in defeat to that besetting sin. To that perpetual enemy, to those Philistines that come your way every morning and every night. You don't have to allow the devil to wreak havoc in your life. The flesh and the world and the pride of life and and the lust of your eyes. You don't have to let those emotions rule over you every day. Through the power of God, hear me, you can live in victory. The same power, Ephesians chapter 1, that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that lives in every believer. First John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Pray for God's power. Seek God's power. Rely on God's power. Walk in God's power. And watch after you inquire of him how he will deliver you just like he delivered King David. There it is. That's a kingdom collage. To a little preaching tonight. What do we learn from these four episodes? Well, first we learn to trust God's promises. They may be old. And they may be opposed. But they're never false. So claim his promises tonight. Believe his promises. 
and then pray his promises out loud every day. Know what we learned second? How we should see ourselves in the kingdom of God. We aren't here for ourselves. We don't exist to be served. We exist to serve others, whether that be in our home, our church, our school, our workplace, or in our community. Just like God made David King for the people's sake, God has placed us here for the sake of helping people find and follow Jesus. And we do that most effectively when we wash their feet. Third, we learn that the best among us are still sinners. Hear me. David was the greatest king Israel ever had, but he still messed up. And there are many godly saints in our congregation. This church has been led by many godly pastors. We can learn from them. We can respect them. We can honor them. But at the end of the day, the only one worthy of our worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never disappoint us. And lastly, we learn that God will protect us now and in the future through his guidance and his power. So trust in him. Did you pay attention to the words of that song that we ended the song service with? I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward because as folks are praying or however you see fit to respond, we're just going to sing that song again. We've learned a lot of good practical things tonight, but none greater than who God is. The songwriter said, I bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord forever. I will trust him at all times. He has delivered me from all fear. He has set my feet upon a rock. I will not be moved. And I'll say of the Lord, you are my shield. You're my strength, my portion, my deliverer, my shelter, my strong tower, my very present help in time of need. What did you need from 2 Samuel 5 tonight? What did you need? I bet you God gave it to you. Stand to your feet. Let's pray.